Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last nine years, I've done more than 380 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today, we're speaking with Jay Prichidney, CCE, about editing Scream 6. Jay has won or been nominated for numerous Canadian Cinema Editor Awards for projects including The Alienist, Orphan Black, Canada's Next Top Model, The Next Step, and Lost and Found Music Studios. He also won a BAFTA for The Next Step. His other credits include the TV series Snowpiercer, Altered Carbon, and Wednesday. Before I hop into our discussion with Jay, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end -end encryption, native support for macOS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no limits 14 day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years. So they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative visions of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to borisfx.com and check out the Boris Effects suite, which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to borisfx.com AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, Jay Prichidney, CCE, on his editing of Scream 6. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining me. One of the first questions I have is just the interesting fact of having two directors on this, and how does it work? when you're collaborating to have two directors. Yeah, it's really interesting. Not only are they two directors, but this is only the third time they've worked with an editor who wasn't themselves. <laughs> Their last two films, Scream and Ready or Not, for the first two times I worked with an outside editor. The amazing thing was they really were in sync with a lot of things. A lot of time I'd get them confused sometimes <laughs> bad because sometimes they did actually operate like a hive mind, which is so amazing. I guess part of that is because they've been working together for so long. Definitely it happened that there'd be differences of opinion sometimes, usually over very minor things. But for the big things, it was really a very productive and collaborative environment for all of us. One of the things that always interests me is the macro pacing of a movie, not just the internal to a scene pacing, but I noticed the ebb and flow of scary moment, emotional moment, that kind of thing. Was that something that was completely scripted or did you find that you needed to mold that a little bit in post? It's interesting with a movie like this because there's different modes that you enter into 
when you're editing. There's the action moments, there's the drama moments, and Scream especially. I mean, so much of it is about the lead up to things. And that's something I really wanted to bring to this movie, because as a fan of the Scream movies, that's what I loved so much in the previous movies is taking its time and that delicious feeling before something happens that, you know, gets the audience excited that I love those like nervous Twitters in an audience when they know something's about to happen and they all kind of go, (laughs) you know, that kind of electrified. I love that, you know, I mean, that that is all part of the kind of macro pacing is how do you set up and pay off certain moments like that? And for me, I always wanted to draw out those moments as much as possible, the moments before the moments, because for me, those are kind of the most delicious, exciting, scary parts. And unfortunately, those are the things that often come under fire if you have to start cutting down for time. But luckily on this movie, we didn't have to do that. Oh, that's great. I've thought about that before is sometimes you manage at the beginning to save those moments, but then as you get pushed and pushed, you're starting to chop away at... Exactly. I didn't work on the last screen, but apparently that's what happened on the last film a lot, is the studio was more impatient and was saying, just get to the kill, get to the action. But I think for a lot of screen fans, it's not just about the action. Yeah, absolutely. You could tell from this film specifically, or definitely in the franchise, that people care about those characters. And the acting is always on such a high level in the Scream movies, the performances and the character work. People love these characters. You know, I think that also sets it apart from a lot of slasher movies. A lot of times the Michael Myers or the Jason is the hero and the other characters are just kind of put in there to be murdered. (laughs) They're the fodder. That happens in the Scream movies, too. But it's also not that, you know, there is no consistent bad guy and... People get upset if you kind of mess with their favorite characters. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. There's a great discussion out on a college quad. It's a meta discussion of the franchise. One of the interesting things about it is it's that scene in every movie that every editor has to deal with a huge number of characters, usually around a dinner table. Talk to me about that specific scene because it has almost everybody in it. And building it and allowing everybody their moment and being on reactions at the right time, that kind of thing. (laughs) Well, you're just reminding me of my first cut of that scene, which is unusual for me. Normally, I kind of do one cut and stick with that to show the directors. That was a scene unusually for me. I kind of went back and started second guessing some of my original instincts on that scene because You know, I wanted it to be comedy. I wanted it to be fast paced. And it is all those things. But I probably pushed it too far, made it a bit too extreme with the reaction shot, because there's a very precise nature to the way jokes are told. In editing, I always want the editing rhythm to kind of mirror that kind of setup joke punchline with a reaction shot, however you kind of achieve that. I think I kind of went too far a little bit in trying to just beat out every line, every joke, giving each line its moment, each character its moment. A couple of weeks after I edited that scene, which is so rare for me to go back and say, I think this isn't going to be well received. I think this is pushing too far. Kind of went back and just tried to streamline it a little more, try to not give everything its own beat, play a little more in wide shots so you can get setups and reactions in the wide shots sometimes. I always just 
pick for that scene, the fastest takes, the funniest takes. The director's also like a kind of sense of comedy that's not so pushed, is kind of more subtle, more like you laugh at something you're not even sure why you're laughing at. You're not even sure if it's a joke. But that was kind of that one scene where everyone felt comfortable. Let's just push these jokes. Let's make them jokes, treat them as jokes, and just make it a kind of fast and furious, punchy editing sequence. Love it. And and the idea that editing's a process. There's so many people, I think, that would cut something and you think you're done or something. But there's always that looking back at something with a fresh eye. Like, uh, you might have gone back. Did you say it was a week or two weeks? Probably a week or two after. Usually I just cut a scene and then move on. <laughs> and I don't really mess with it until I start collaborating with someone on it. With that one, it was during production. I went back and I thought, oh, maybe I should just take another pass at this. There's a scene with the therapist there's a great creepy overhead shot of the therapist walking down a hallway and i i thought if i saw that in dailies i would say that's got to go in <laughs> what, what do you the tracking you, shot towards the door you're saying yeah 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 talk to me about those moments where you just see a shot in dailies where you're like oh that's in what do you do do you put a note do you put it into a selects reel what do you do you know, like I said, I kind of just do one cut and I'm done. I'm a very kind of linear editor to like almost an insane degree. I just start at the beginning of a scene, pick the first shot. I look through all the dailies at the beginning of the scene and I pick the first shot and I put that in. And then I go through all the next little bit of the dailies and then I put the second shot in and kind of like that. And so I kind of watch as I cut. And then by the time I finish cutting the scene, I'll have seen all the dailies, but I don't watch it all beforehand. Mm-hmm. I've heard that technique. I'm a very organic, instinctual process. But you're watching from the dailies. You're not watching from select. Some people would put together a line-by-line select, but you're literally just going, I'm just going to look at the first little bit. Yeah, every take of every setup. I mean, I'll look at the notes and stuff just for maybe a general sense of what the directors are. But it's sometimes even then, it doesn't even give you a proper sense of what the directors are really looking for. So I'll kind of look at the notes as just kind of intellectual knowledge. And then, yeah, I'll look through all takes. and Well, especially going through it the way you're saying you go through it very linearly. If you're thinking about the first shot and not the whole scene... The notes would really make no sense, probably, because you could be on the least favorite take and it could still yeah. be the best first moment. I really don't even know what that means, favorite takes. Or no. <laughs> it's right. like, has there ever, I guess there have been, I've heard about them, but I've never worked with a director who's like, or well, is this the take we selected or whatever? Because within every take, there's little moments that you're not going to work down. So I, I've never understood that whole thing. But I've never worked with a director who's like, haven't you used my favorite take? So I don't know what that is even like. (laughs) (laughs) Totally understand. Let's talk about the choice of shot sizes. That was, you know, that's something that you always kind of have to do is in your approach, your kind of linear approach. Are you thinking, okay, I started on a wide shot. Now I want to go to a medium or I want to go to a close. And that's what's driving what takes you're looking at is what size you want to be in. For the most part, it's very emotionally driven. You know, I'm really, before I get into a scene, I'm kind of aware of what I want to get out of the scene, where I think the moments of the scene are. And then I just look at the footage and react to it very instinctually. You know, it's like, where do I get that feeling that I want to be feeling here? And I just kind of watch the little bits of footage with that emotionally open posture and uh, just feel in myself where I'm getting that feeling that I want to be generating in an audience. So I don't think about it 
in terms of what shot size or whatever. It's just kind of like, I might get that feeling from a wide shot. I might get that feeling from master. I might get it from a close up. It's like whatever the feeling that I'm trying to achieve is and wherever I find that in the footage. Because, you know, wide shots can have their own kind of emotionality. You know, it's like sometimes you get an emotion more strongly by being farther away from an actor. From my subjective view is kind of what is the right emotion and where in the footage you do I find that? I loved a little rhythm moment of a series of door locks being unlocked. Do you remember that? Yeah. Can you talk about that? that, that you are laughing. So <laughs> that was a bizarrely uh, controversial moment. Oh, was it really? Yeah. <laughs> the amount of times we kind of went back and forth on this moment. That was one moment where the directors did disagree on what to do. I mean, it's such a simple thing. We're talking about unlocking a door. It's funny that there were so many arguments about it. But <laughs> I love doing stuff like that. But this movie didn't seem to be that type of movie to me. And the directors didn't seem to be like that type. So when I first got the footage, I cut it very naturally. I mean, I tried to pace it up because it's boring <laughs> to watch. You know, so I cut it very naturally and there was just a lot of bait back and forth. Like they were bored by it is, I guess, the essential note. They thought it was boring to watch her unlock a door, but they liked the story point of her having so many locks, you know. So for a while, I just tried to argue, can we just cut on the inside of the room and just hear the locks and she walks in? Like, can it just be a really simple not make a big deal. And we tried it. We tried that so many ways, every possible way, because one director was very sure we wanted these intercuts of the logs. And the other director, I remember he had a line that we made fun of for months after. At one point in the editing, he said, in a movie, as soon as I see a key going to in towards a lock, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of this. It kind of very dramatic proclamation. And we made fun of that for a month. Oh, if you see key going to, can't do that in a movie. So those were the kind of two versions that were competing. Like we tried it so many ways. And those were the kind of two versions we were competing. The extremely rapid intercut locking and just a simple version of the camera already being inside the door and her walking in. You don't want to be out when that key goes in the door. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So for whatever reason, the one with the rapid fire cutting stuck, it's unlike kind of anything else in the movie. But there it is. I always kind of laugh when that comes up because I'm like, this is an interesting style thing that is not anywhere else. But cool. You noticed it. So I noticed great. it. I liked it. I thought it was a fun little <laughs> rhythm thing. But you're right. It is one of those things that in some other movies, it would either be throughout or you'd get it. You'd see that rhythm or style early and then repeat it. Yeah. That was a surprisingly long answer for such a simple <laughs> moment, but there was a lot of talk about that moment. <laughs> well, that's what I love is to hear the discussions, especially like in how do you as an editor, especially with two directors and one is saying one way and one is saying the other, how do you, how are you the steward of that moment? How are you the politician that sits in the middle and tries to figure that That's out. That's why I tried to just bypass it and say, why don't we just skip past this and cut into the room already just to avoid it <laughs> and still tell the story. But anyway, we came to a compromise, a consensus. Did you ever screen it with one or the other? I don't think so. I mean, you know, it was a lot of work getting to the director's cut, a lot of changes and exploration and 
the directors finished their pass in about six weeks. And then we brought in the writer producer to also be involved. And so we did his pass for another couple of weeks or so. And then from that point, we were pretty much at the first preview. We didn't change the movie a lot from Jamie, the writer producer, finishing his pass. I was, we made some changes, but it was pretty much the movie. One of the places where I sensed the building of suspense the most was on the subway. Can you talk yeah. about how, as an editor, you are trying to increase that suspense that's already obviously written into the scene and acted into the scene? What are you doing as an editor to increase the suspense on a scene like that? That was definitely going into the movie, even before I knew the script or anything, just being a fan of the previous movies, that was something I really wanted to bring into this one. We talked about it a little bit about the moment before the moment, you know, and really kind of living in that. And the subway sequence was interesting because probably out of all the action sequences, it's probably the most similar to my first cut. That was the scene when I did my editor's assembly, the director said, well, this is in great shape. This is really working well. We definitely made some changes, but overall, in terms of the structure and the pacing of it, it's quite similar to my first cut. And it's such an interesting sequence because it's very long. It's very drawn out to like a almost absurd degree. Again, if we came under running time fire, that would have been just cut up. I just know because it's so long. But to me, it's like the exciting things are the setting up of the situation. That to me was a part I was most excited about going into the movie. I knew I wanted to have fun with setting up situations. So where Mindy is standing, where Ethan is standing, Ethan's perspective, what can he see? Getting Ethan's perspective, then going to Mindy, getting her perspective, what's her setup? Who are the people around her? And really just taking that time to really set up the physical scenario. Like the geography of it. Yeah, the geography, which is not strictly necessary. You know, I mean, you don't need that to have an exciting subway murder scene because it's a simple scene. Ghostface is there. He's getting closer. You know, you don't really need to set up the geography. You could just intellectually, you could grasp the scenario very easily. But to me, setting up the geography in a lot of cases was the thing because you're taking so much time you're explaining to the audience, this is here, this is there. And there's just something uneasy about that whole thing of taking your time with that because the audience is like, what's going to happen? That's the feeling that I wanted to generate. Now, something the directors loved was that it's just how much time that scene is taking. Also, when Ghostface is starting to come up on Mindy and Mindy's going in the dark, again, just kind of hanging in the black and just really drawing it out so the audience starts searching themselves. They're peering into the darkness and trying to see. And that was the intention of just making things fun and uneasy by them being unnaturally long. The other thing that I got a sense of when I watched that scene as an editor is not only are you dealing with the performance of the actress, which is great, but there's all of the lighting cues. The train's going down a tunnel and the lights are coming on and off and lights are spinning. And talk about looking through the dailies for that scene and finding those visual moments that also helped. 
that is something that ended up getting tweaked a lot in editing. You know, that was something we paid a lot of attention to is where are the lights flickering? <laughs> you know, how long are the flickers? How long are we in black? How many frames can you see ghost fake? Like all those things, we kind of paid a lot of attention to that. So there was a lot of editing trickery in there just to try, you know, things that look like single shots have, you know, a lot of editing in them just to make the flickers happen at a certain time or whatever, because they shot what they shot. The lights did what they did. There wasn't like a specific thing of they must function this way. You know, it's more just in the editing. The directors would be like, oh, it would be great if this was longer. Or it would be great if there was like a moment of darkness and then Ghostface pops up or it would be great if this happened or this happened. And then it's like, oh, OK, <laughs> let's figure out how to do that with the footage that we have. It's a funny thing. It's almost like your audience knows what's going to happen. So it's almost like you have to trick them first into thinking it's not going to happen by lulling them into thinking nothing's happening. And then make some, it's this kind of bizarre second guessing game you're playing with the audience because they're so smart and they're so savvy. You need to subvert what they think is happening. So I think that was one of our uh, techniques is we called that lulling. <laughs> we want to lull the audience into believing nothing's happening and then have something happen. Talk about editing to build to a climax. There's a bunch of those times that happens in the movie where... It's usually an action scene or a killing, but the editorial work of getting to that climax in a scene. Can you think of a specific scene you shaped towards that climax? Obviously all of them, but. I think probably the scene that is kind of most tightly constructed in the edit, I would say, is the ladder sequence. That's a very fast paced scene. It's different from a lot of the other action scenes that are kind of more drawn out and more suspenseful. So the latter scene you're talking about, for those who haven't seen it, and I'm not going to give anything away, but the character is trying to climb from one apartment to another over a ladder. Yeah, and one of the main problems with that scene that we had all the way along until, I guess, very close to the final edit was just you need three people to cross the ladder. One, two, three... Once you've seen the first one, it's kind of like, well, we know what that looks like. If it was cut how it was shot, it would be very boring because there's no action or fun here. It's repetitive. That scene kind of more than any other one, we wanted it to have this feeling of what you're saying is building to a climax, you know, and the ramping up of tension. How do you do that with footage that is essentially repetitive? <laughs> It's nothing to say about the direction or the shooting of it. It's just no, three characters just the, are doing the exact same thing. Yeah, it's just the nature of the scenario. And, you know, you have Ghostface banging on the door, which he's slowly kind of getting further and further into the room, but still largely repetitive. So that scene, we were really focused on how do you continually ramp this up and pace this up? One of the last things we discovered was that Mindy is the second person to get off the ladder Annika's already getting on the ladder as Mindy's getting off, you know, just really time compressing these things. So it's not, you know, and then another thing I wanted to bring to the movie before I started something I love from the other screen movies is that sense of operatic tragedy, which, you know, a lot of the other screen movies have. And I really wanted to bring that tone back into this movie somewhere. This was the scene to do it <laughs> because you know, you're kind of ramping up to this point of where Annika's on the ladder and Ghostface appears behind her. 
And then there's a gear change. We switch into this emotion because it's not really about the action. Like everyone knows kind of at that point where the scene's going, you know? So for me, it was about kind of switching gears into this different tone of this kind of operatic, emotional, tragic death. Because the audience already knows this character's going to die. So it's getting into the emotion of that as opposed to just playing the game of who's going to die. Because once Ghostface is behind Annika, you know it's over. <laughs> so, <laughs> Talk about the creation of jump scares, or is that mostly... I'm trying to think how some of those are constructed, whether the jump actually happens on camera or whether you're cutting to make that jump. Usually it is in the cut, I would say. There are a few instances that happen in camera. One, for instance, is when Mindy doesn't get on the train and the subway passes her by and she's just kind of standing there and looking off and the classic fake out jump scare. Someone taps her on the shoulder and there's a loud jolt of music and everyone jumps. So that one was done in camera, but, you know, in every take, the timing was totally different. So it's like in one take, he tapped her on the shoulder immediately. I think this was the medium level take where there's quite a long pause. And then there was one where it's kind of even longer. And yeah, like so many of our jump scare ethos in the movie was basically, like I said, kind of lull the audience <laughs> into thinking nothing will happen and then have something happen. So the take that's in the movie just to me felt the most that conformed to that is something happened. There was an end of the scene. There's a breath. The audience has enough time to think it's over and then something happens. So that was just kind of within the camera. But, uh, you know, a lot of them were done with cuts, but it was that same kind of feeling. We wanted to kind of feel that way. Or sometimes in creating a jump scare, I try to uh, interrupt my own cutting pattern. So sometimes leading up to a jump scare, whether or not this works, I hope it works. <laughs> I don't really know if it works I, or not. I, I jumped a bunch of times, so. <laughs> that it does. But oftentimes movies can have kind of a repetitive rhythm. And so I try to like play with that leading up to a jump scare. I'd have this shot last this long and then the shot after it lasts a certain amount of time period and the next shot after to have a certain. And then before the jump scare, you cut to another shot, but then you interrupt that shot. So, you know, often there'd be kind of slower, slower shots. And then the shot right before the jump scare would be a lot shorter so that the audience isn't kind of expecting an interruption of rhythm there. Ah, you know, totally understand it. Yeah. Very musical idea of when you expect the beat to happen. Yeah, exactly. Can you think of any of the notes or any of the, the changes that happened as you were talking about the director's cut and the producer's cut after that? Things that either maybe you cut a scene for a specific reason or why things changed to be the way that we see them now? This project, more so than a lot of projects I've worked on, is that the directors were looking for kind of a slightly different editing style than what I had done. Not so much in the action scenes. They were quite happy with the kind of style of that. It was more in some of the dramatic scenes, especially the opening scene in the restaurant with Samara weaving. What else? The therapy scene with Sam and her psychiatrist near the beginning of the movie. I often like things to feel tightly structured and really have the editing dictate the pace of the movie. We never talked about it to this level 
between the three of us. But what I inferred from working with them was that they don't always like that. <laughs> Often they like the performers to be more foregrounded, the performers to set a little more of the pace and for editing to be less visible. More reactive to yeah. the performances. Yeah. You know, that was kind of a slight re-engineering in my brain of just how to play the scenes that way. It was in the dramatics. I think those were probably the two main ones that I mentioned where they got re-edited quite a lot to really background the editing a lot more. The scenes are still highly cut, of course. It's kind of giving the illusion to the audience and trying to play the game of, this isn't really cut. <laughs> this is just all how it's happening sort of thing. I think that's the way most audiences think of movies. <laughs> like, yeah. It all just happened like this. Exactly. How did you meet these directors and get chosen for this project? It was through a producer friend of mine who I worked with on Snowpiercer and the Alienist, Ben Rosenblatt. He had a relationship with Paramount Pictures. He'd made a few movies for them in the past. And... For whatever reason, they were very late in the game in finding an editor for this movie. I'm not exactly sure why, but I was hired very close to the movie starting. Paramount was just looking for an editor and they reached out to him and asked for recommendations. And he just suggested me and somehow sold them on the idea of me being the right person for the job. I don't know how he did that, <laughs> but apparently they were convinced yeah, so Paramount put me forward to uh, the producers of the film as a candidate for editing. And it was very simple. I just kind of met with them, had a Zoom conversation. I mean, I was such a fan of the movies, so I'm sure that helped because the directors are huge fans of the movies as well. And so I'm sure that was a big part in getting the job. But yeah, I kind of just had an interview with them and they hired me, which was amazing. Speaking about being a fan of the movies and seeing them, when you found out you had the job, did you go back and watch all or the previous one before you cut? I mean, I'm actually a really big fan, so I probably... <laughs> you didn't you know, need regardless to. Regardless of having gotten the job, I think I'd probably seen them maybe about eight months prior <laughs> to having... <laughs> I did see the previous film, Scream 5, when I was in Romania editing Wednesday, you know, because Jenna was in it, and I'm a huge fan of the movies. So I had seen Scream 5 in theaters when it came out. So I was quite familiar. So I think I did just go back again to watch Scream 5 again, just to kind of remind myself of these directors and their style and that sort of thing. But I already have a pretty encyclopedic knowledge of the Scream franchise, though. <laughs> That's pretty funny. And this is a pretty meta Scream, self-referential. I could see that it would help to have a good knowledge of the franchise. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, if for no other reason, because the people that you're making this movie for have an encyclopedic knowledge of the entire franchise. So it does really help to really understand how the fans will be looking at it, what their background is, what they will come into it expecting to see, what they might not expect. I think that's all helpful in constructing the film. And speaking of the fans, I was also thinking about the denouement, how long that goes, right? Because you've got these fans that, and I'm not saying it's too long. I'm saying the fans want a resolution, right? They want to see the characters safe. Yeah. They want to see 
relationships join where they wanted to see them join. They want some kind of a, a resolution. So talk about whatever massaging happened during that denouement of length, what happens, how long it goes. It's interesting because a lot of the screen films don't have much of a denouement, um, especially the first one. It's like the action ends and then you just cut to Gail giving a news report and we're out. And there were certainly times in this movie where I just fantasized, why couldn't we just have done that? <laughs> why couldn't we have gotten out of this earlier? Because the ending for me was the most problematic part of the movie. That was the biggest red flag I raised during production. That was the part where I was like, I don't think this is right. <laughs> Just because it kept going on and on and on. And there were there was a lot more dialogue in there than it is in the current film. So that's one way we tackled it. But I was worried about it because... It's all interconnected. So it's not like you can just like lift this scene or lift that scene. So I did raise the flag like we maybe want to think about if this is really what we want. Because <laughs> we're going to be really stuck in editing if we decide later we don't like it. But the directors and the producers obviously liked it because it ended up the way it was. And I like the resolution personally. I think we got it to a point. There was a lot of massaging to get it there. One of the other biggest problems was just this moment of Mindy running up to them. Everyone had the issue of the last time we saw her, she was stabbed and now she's sprinting. We have lots of things that are physically unbelievable in this movie, but for some reason that was something that was sticking for everyone. So the way we addressed that was really seeding her into the third act a lot more in dialogue. You know, with ADR, we wrote new dialogue. Quinn talks about her earlier in the third act, which was ADR. And then Danny talks about her later in the third act, which was ADR, just to kind of start seeding this notion that she's going to appear. So there were things like that to just make everything feel more cohesive and not just random and out of the blue. I love that the answer was not to cut the running short or whatever, but to prepare the audience for what was going to happen. So often that's the answer, right? You, <laughs> the problem that an audience has isn't at the point where they have the problem. It's some point before they have the problem. That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a Topic-Driven Curated Look at the Craft of Editing. Thanks to Jay Prichidney, CCE. Thanks to Ryan Healy for editing today's podcast. And thanks to our partner, Boris FX, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com slash cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening. And please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app.